Lord, we are humbled to have the privilege of your word. And this morning, Lord, as we have read through this chapter, we, Lord, desperately need wisdom and guidance from your Holy Spirit to understand, Lord, what it is that you want to show us about who you are, about your glory, and, Lord, about um, how we can humbly live our lives for you and worship you as our great God and Savior. And so, Lord, would you allow us to be teachable? Would you allow me as your messenger to be faithful to proclaim your truth, Lord, as it was intended to be? And Lord, if there is a a need for any correction or any change in what is said, Lord, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to stir our hearts, Lord, to see that. Lord, we need you desperately. We're living in a world, Lord, where we are um, constantly hearing bad news and uh, difficult times and uncertainties about the future. And Lord, we, we need the comfort of your gospel. We need the comfort of your sovereignty. And Lord, we need the reminder that you reveal to us in this text. And Lord, just strengthen us now with your word. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you've been with us through our journey through 1 Samuel now into 2 Samuel, I think you would agree with me that one of the big um, emphasis in those two books so far is God making good on his promise to raise up a king over Israel. That has been really one of the crisis realities in Israel is the fact that they did not have a king. But they need a king, not that is chosen by the people, but a king that was actually chosen by God and anointed by God, a man after God's own heart. And the hint of this promise begins in Israel through the the singing of the song of Hannah in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. In the last stanza of her song, this is what she sings. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. That is where this book is taking us. That is the the flow of 1 and 2 Samuel. And then after Israel chooses their own king rather than listening to God, that own king would be Saul. He's the one like the other nations He fails to obey God, and the Lord promises then to Saul, he says, I have torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and have given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. You'll find that in chapter 15 and verse 28. And eventually Samuel anoints a teenage boy by the name of David to be king over Israel. And this young David, as you know, over the next few years will defeat Goliath, the Philistine champion. He will develop a covenant friendship with Jonathan, the son of Saul. He will defeat the Philistine army in battle time and time again. Yet, he would end up being Saul's enemy. He would have to hide. He would have to escape because Saul would pursue him to kill him. And eventually, he would have to find himself in the Philistine territory where he could be safe away from the pursuits of Saul. And during that time, God gives us at least three reminders 
of his promise to Israel through the lips of different characters. Jonathan, Abigail, and Saul. Jonathan affirms to David um, that he is going to be Lord, that when his father dies, that Jonathan isn't going to assume that, that he recognizes that, that that is David's right by God's determination. Abigail affirms that David would be king. She knows it as she speaks to him in defense of her own household. And then even Saul, in a confrontation with David, acknowledges and confesses that he sees the writing on the wall about David being king and that that is God's purpose. But now David has been anointed king over Judah by the rulers of Judah. That's what we looked at last week. But a little to the north and to the east across the Jordan, Abner has taken Ishbosheth, the last son here of Saul, and he has raised him to be king over Israel. So now we have a king over Israel, and we have a king over Judah. Now it's true that David is only king of Judah, but what we see in the fact that he's king over Judah is the the beginnings of God's promise to actually have him be king of Israel start. There's a process of God fulfilling his promise, and we'll see the end of that promise in chapter two and verse, uh, sorry, chapter five and verses one through three, where Jesus will be anointed king of Israel and Judah. And between where we are now and chapter, uh, chapter five, we find what I'm calling uh, the Abner Chronicles. And it's in this section that David's kingship is going to be challenged, is going to be opposed. And in particular, in this story of Abner's Chronicles, it shows us that God's promises are always tested. And we're going to see that they're tested by aggression. That's going to be our focus today. They're going to be tested by politics or selfish ambition. That'll be our focus the next time we're in 2 Samuel. And then it will be tested by revenge. God's promises are always being tested by mankind. But the narrator is showing us that no matter how strong a man you are, no no matter how strong a country you have, or no matter how strong the movement that you're a part of is, you cannot undermine the promises of God. When God promises something, he will do it. Now, friends, we need the certainty of that truth rooted in our being. Because as the world, I want to say, turns upside down, as things happen in your world, in your life, that seem to be um, going against the grain of Christian, uh, Christian values or Christian purposes or even your, your physical life, you need to remember that what God has promised in his word will take place that it is true, and it will happen. So mark it down, what God says he will do, and no man, no movement, no nation will stand in his way. Still, man, even with the knowledge of God and his ways, chooses to reject what God has promised. He challenges God, 
He seeks to rid himself of God and God's restraining burden, at least that's his perception. So in our text today, God's promises will be tested by aggression. So we're asking the question, how, or we're making the statement, how God's promises are tested by aggression. Now all one needs to do, just to answer that question, is turn your TV on, listen to the radio, maybe read some newspapers, that kind of stuff, and you will, you will hear stories, you will pick up some of the things that are taking place around the world that are forms of aggression, in particular against Christians. We've more recently you know, been, been kind of taken back by ISIS and ISIS-type groups that continue to target those who oppose them, not all of them being Christians, but many of them being Christians. And their militant Islam thinks nothing of using violence and aggression because they consider everyone who's not like them to be infidels. So whether it's the mass execution of Christians by beheading, whether it's the the blowing up or the, the raiding of a hotel and killing the inhabitants that are there, um, whether it's the, the, the killing of women and children or um, the bombing of, of churches that has happened in Nigeria. All those things are part of this antagonism, this aggression against Christianity. In other places, it's communism or it's atheism or some other kind of religious system that is opposed to Christ. So Christians are arrested, Christians are put in jail, they're beaten. And this takes place in places like China, Pakistan, Indonesia, just to name a few. There are other places that takes place too. So aggression is a hardship that Christians will likely face at one time or another. But friends, the reality is we've been living in the United States of America. A comfortable soft, wonderful society. And we're thankful for what we have. But that isn't the reality of every place around the world. That is not the reality of where many Christians live. And many people are living day by day wondering what's going to happen, wondering how they're going to be pursued by those who do not like them and do not appreciate them and want to stand against Christianity. So aggression is an effective means of undermining a loyalty to the promises of God. It's an effective tool to stop missionaries serving in difficult places among people they have loved for years. It's an intimidating tactic of Satan to discourage, to disband, or to derail efforts of all believers from any kind of ministry to unbelievers. Aggression will stop you from opening up your mouth and sharing the gospel. Aggression will cause you to think twice about how much you're willing to suffer for Christ. Aggression will affect you incredibly if you have children. It will put a wedge between those you love and the God that you worship. Because you start to question now not only your own life, but those whom you love. In fact, I was watching something this week, and I don't know if you know who, who um, Tim Cassie is. He's a, a missionary. He does these dispatches from the front. And he was speaking at uh, the Desiring God Conference for Pastors, and he was saying, 
one of the problems they're having on the mission field is that couples will go excitedly to the mission field and they'll work hard in their difficult places, but when a child comes, they start to shrink back from the things that they were once doing before. And it's understandable, but as you go off into that kind of context, you, you have to say, God, I'm, I'm taking my whole family, and we're going to trust you no matter what. Those are hard things. Those are hard considerations. Now, it's easier to say, I can do it, than the reality of what we might think God is actually calling us to do. And that is why Jesus stressed that discipleship comes at a cost. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus said to the multitudes, deny yourself. Secondly, take up your cross. In other words, take on the shame of the cross. Be willing to suffer daily. And then he says, follow me. Who, just like Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. Now friends, aggression in all of its forms is effective because few people want to suffer. Anyone here want to suffer this morning? I'll take some volunteers and we'll practice on you. How's that? No, we don't want to suffer. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive to suffer, right? We would rather run for protection. We would rather leave countries for safety. We would rather abandon our post than, than suffer. But let us remember God's promises. You see, it's God's promises and God's promise, we might say, collectively, that helps us then to gain perspective in difficult circumstances. Now, back to our text. One of the keys to understanding this text is actually two keys that will help us unlock the door to help us grasp these few verses in 2 Samuel. Because I'll be honest with you, this is a rather bloody section of Scripture, isn't it? And sometimes when you come to Old Testament passages that are like this, you're like, what in the world is going on? I'm not too sure how to approach this. But God has given us this record for a reason. And we need to kind of dig in and find out what that reason is. And here are two keys. Key number one, Abner knows the promises of God. Abner, who ultimately will be the one that the servants of David will be fighting against, Abner knows the promises of God. You can find those in, in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, and verse 18. Now these are times when he is quoting the promises of God after this occasion, but the fact that he's able to quote them shows us that he already knew them, and here's what he says, verse 9 of chapter 3, God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what God said is going to happen to David. And then verse 18, now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. So Abner knows the promises of God. Secondly, second key, Abner is the aggressor in these events. He is the one who is stirring things up. He is the one who is coming 
looking for a fight. It's really important for us to recognize here to help us understand what's going on in this text. And so understanding these keys will help us see that Abner ultimately is standing aggressively against David, against Joab, who is David's trusted servant, against the servants of David, which would be the men who are part of the army, and against the Lord God of Israel himself. Now, as we turn to our text, we're going to see that it it unfolds in four scenes. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to work through the scenes, hopefully pretty quickly. We're going to talk a little bit about aggression and what that looks like in the context of Christianity. And then I have three commitments that flow out of all this that I think we can land the plane on. Um, And uh, so just bear with me as we walk through the story together. These four scenes, by the way, um, are a gathering around the pool. These are not your your headings, but this is what they're about. A gathering around the pool, a race in the midst of a battle, a discussion from the top of a hill, and then a journey home. So let's jump right in now to look at the story in these different scenes. First of all, we have a senseless competition by a pool. Now here's what happens. Abner leaves Mahanaim, comes down across the Jordan, down to the southern section of the Israelite territory. He's like five miles away from the border, and he plants his army there. This is an aggressive maneuver on the part of Abner. I mean, just look at it this way. Imagine if Canada brought all of their... All right, forget that thought. Imagine... You get the point, though, but if, if you amass all your armies in a location right across the border, those who live across the border in that country are saying to themselves, all right, something's up here, and something was up. See, for five years, Abner has been, in a sense, overseeing the affairs of Israel, but now he set up Ishbosheth to be the king and he really is the puppet king. It's Abner who's pulling the strings here. He's the one who's driving the army. It's Abner now who pursues or pushes his army in an aggressive manner to be poised just outside of, of Judah's territory. So what does the leader of Judah and the armies of Judah do? Well, Joab then, in an understandable fashion, um, takes the armies of Judah, also known as the servants of David, to face Abner. And they're there to show him that they are not going to be passive about his military aggression. And so you have then Joab with his army, you have Abner with his army, poised now together, face to face, at this pool. What this is, what's happening here, friends, is not some coincidental meeting of armies. This is a carefully planned strategy by Abner to impose northern might on David's Judean kingdom. He does not like the fact that David is sitting on the throne in Judah. So Abner is coming to attack David and his armies. And when they meet at Gibeon, they're all sitting around this pool. Now don't think of a, of a pond, don't think of an oasis. This is a place where um, it's actually pretty hard rock and there's this big pool around or in this rock. You may have seen places like that before, maybe up in Yosemite you see that. You see like a, a lake that is there, and it's actually all bedrock, and there's water on top of it, so it's a very, very kind of a rough, hard terrain. 
right? And breaking the silence, however, as they're sitting opposite each other, armies facing each other, it's Abner that pushes the agenda in the story. And he suggests a competition to, should take place between 12 of his young men and 12 of Joab's men. Now, the word competition is kind of a, a soft word for what this is really all about. This is in line with the ancient custom of representative combat. You choose your champion, and rather than the whole army's fighting, whichever champion wins, that settles the dispute. And so here they go out. I mean, this is what happened with David and Goliath, right? I mean, Goliath comes out and says, I'm the champion. If I win, you know, then you serve us. And if you win, then we'll serve you. That's the idea. The same kind of thing that's going on here. So 12 of David's champions face 12 of Abner's champions. And the narrative tells us that they all killed each other. So 12 guys go after 12 guys. And when it's all done, there's 24 guys laying on the ground, dead. And the bottom line here is this. The competition served ultimately no purpose except to escalate the conflict and create more bloodshed. Next scene. Since the knife fight by the pool resulted in no victory for either side, both of the armies rose up to take the fight to one another. And the narrator summarizes the bloody battle by saying this, the battle was very fierce that day. I just try and fill that expression in with, with all kinds of conflict and death and suffering. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So Abner's aggression in coming to flex his muscles on the border of Judah, and his aggression in suggesting a bloody competition to the death has now resulted in more and more bloodshed. But Abner's army, we see, is beaten before the servants of David. And the narrator takes us further into the story and introduces us to three sons of Zariah. Joab, who we've already met, um, he is the leader of the armies. Abishai, who joined David, if you remember in the story where he went secretly into Saul's camp and he stole the spear and the jug of water. It was Abishai that went with David at that point in time. And then we're also introduced here to Asahel, who's new to us. This is the first time we've really uh, paid any attention to him. And the narrator just takes a moment to describe him. He's a warrior and he was fast. We're told that he was like a gazelle. That's not usually the kind of expression I would use to describe someone, but the point there is that he was fast and nimble and able to run over kind of a rocky terrain. And he was fast, okay? That's the point here. He would not stop. And he sees Abner, the leader of the other army, and, and, and Asahel just, he puts his bead on him. All right? I mean, he's got his GPS, and he is not giving up, and he is just going to run and run. And Abner goes this way, Asahel, no problem, I got you covered. All right, Abner goes the other way, I got you covered. I am chasing you down. And you got to be thinking like Asahel is. He says, I've got you in my, in my what do you call them, my crosshairs, right? And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you. And so he's pursuing him, and he's pursuing him. And in his mind, he's probably thinking to himself, I'm going to chase you down 
uh, because you are the enemy leader opposed to my king, and I'm going to finish this opposition once for all. It doesn't matter where you go, Abner. I'm going to keep pursuing you if it's the last thing I do. And don't even try to talk me out of it. Don't try and distract me by the spoils of war. And what we find out is this was actually the last thing he did. He certainly pursued Abner. And as Abner appeals to Asahel to stop his pursuit, Asahel ignores him and just keeps on running. You might, you might be tempted to say that Asahel's obsession with his pursuit of Abner blinded him to his own limitations and vulnerability. Because Abner, who was an experienced warrior, finally gets to the place where he gives up saying anything more to Asahel, and he just stops in his track and takes a spear and goes like that right behind him, and it goes right through Asahel as he is pursuing him. It tells us that the spear went all the way through his back. Now, friends, you might just think, okay, then it's another person who died in battle. But, friends, this was no small death on the battlefield. This was the death of one of David's loyal men. This was the death of David's nephew. He was one of the sons of Zariah. Zariah was David's sister. You can check that out. 1 Chronicles 2.16. Joab, the leader of the army, was his brother. So this was a significant death. Now, the other thing that we need to recognize here is what happens next. Notice, um, notice, um, as, we, as we look in this passage, it says that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died, what did they do? They stood still. Now the question is, who are the all being talked about? Is it David's um, men, or is it um, Joab's, or is it uh, sorry Abner's men? I, I think it would be right to say it was both, because they are all ultimately brothers. We're talking about the Israelites. We're talking about people that knew each other. There's a sense in which those that are fighting here on this battlefield know each other. They're aware of each other. I mean, Abner's running, and he's calling back to someone he knows. I don't want to kill you because that may not be a good thing that your brother Joab is going to experience. I don't want to do that to you. There's this knowledge of who the enemy is at this particular point in time. So the death of Asahel caused those who were fighting to stop, but the servants of David and the servants of Ishbosheth alike stopped together. Now, do you see what's happening here? I didn't do this. Do you see what's happening here? Abner's military aggression is failing. His attempt to create conflict is now imploding around him, and he is on the run but his aggression isn't without a cost. Israel is suffering. Judah is suffering. And it takes the death of Asahel to stop the battle and to cause those that are fighting to contemplate the implications of the day. Next scene. I'm calling a whiny blame shift on a hill. So although... Those who saw Asahel die stopped fighting the battle. Joab 
and Abishai continued to pursue Abner. You might think, you might consider that what began as a fight of two armies has now turned into a personal pursuit because of the death of Asahel. That would make sense. That certainly is what um, is important to remember when we get to chapter 3 and the events that take place there. Just put that in the back of your mind. But here's the scene. Abner is with his men, and they are on top of one hill. And then you have Joab that come with his men, and they're on top of another hill, and they're starting now to yell across the valley from one hill to the other. And Abner speaks, and this is what he says. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So here's what Abner is saying. He's saying, Joab, should we allow this bloodshed to continue forever? Joab, don't you see that if it goes on, it will be bitter for both of us? We're going to have lots of casualties? And Joab, don't you realize that this is a conflict between brothers? Now remember the key that I mentioned at the beginning, Abner knows the promises of God, and Abner here is the aggressor. See, in essence, Abner is cleverly placing the blame for bloodshed on the shoulders of Joab. Right? How long will it be before you, Joab, tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Now, friends, this is, this is classic abuse interaction. It's just like any aggressive and violent person who is a, an abuser in a relationship, and typically it's the man or the husband and the wife. When they're guilty of violence or abuse, they turn on their victims and make them feel as if they are responsible for causing the abuse. And there are many women who live in abused relationships where they are convinced that the bruises on their body are their own fault for not doing the things that he expects or wants them to do. And so, yeah, I deserve what I got because I didn't do X, Y, and Z. But notice how Joab responds. Verse 27, and Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. In other words, Joab, you can't put, sorry, in other words, Ahab, you can't put this on me. You are the one who started these events in motion by suggesting that the men compete in hand-to-hand combat. See, he is the aggressor. He is the one coming in. He is the one that is pushing the agenda. He was pushing the aggression in this scenario here. Joab wasn't interested in the battle. He just wanted to defend his king. And he certainly wasn't to blame for Ahab's rebellion against David. So verse 28, so Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Last scene, very simple, returning home. Returning home. It's been a crazy and bloody day. Abner's aggression has resulted in battle that few people actually wanted. And as soon as Joab blows the trumpet for the fighting to stop, 
Abner swiftly retreats back to Manaheim. And Joab dutifully took Asahel's body and buries it at Bethlehem. And then they all return back to Hebron. Joab's job was done. He's defended his king. He's defended his territory. Yet at the end of the day, many men lay dead on the field of battle, don't they? And the narrator is careful to tell us how many. Twenty servants of David had died that day. Twelve in hand-to-hand combat, which means that eight died on the battlefield, as well as, which would include um, Asahel. But of the men that Abner brought with him to flex his muscles against David and his kingdom, 360 died. Now, friends, let those statistics settle. They're not simply there to give us information, but to make a statement. This is a 17 to 1 ratio. This waste of lives is taking place because of Abner's aggression, and it turned out to be a complete rout of Abner's army. You might say, well, what a waste of lives, and you would be right. But I think you could also say, what a decisive victory for the servants of David, God's anointed king. God always keeps his promises. Military might and aggression will never, ever thwart the promises of God. They may cause damage, and there may be casualties, but God's promises will always continue to be true. So Abner's military aggression failed. It failed against David's armies. It fails against David's kingdom, and it fails against God's promises. That's, just, that's the story. It's, it's, it's a crazy story. And yet, there are things that come out of this that I think are helpful. And this, this idea of aggression, I think, is helpful for us to discuss in the context of Christianity. Because I think aggression comes in many forms. I'm just listing kind of three, I broke it down to three general areas. Just maybe to help us kind of categorize and think through this. Area number one would be violence the desire to actually kill and maim and destroy Christians. And you would put war and terrorism into that context. I mean, some, there, are, there are wars that are taking place and have taken place in the past. The goal is to wipe out Christianity. And the goal is to do carnage to those who are Christians. And certainly we're seeing some of that already taking place in the days in which we live, but in a completely different place in the world. Then, secondly, there's persecution. This seeks to, to hinder and or silence the Christian and uses tools like imprisonment, um, maybe for preaching the gospel. All the person did was open up the Bible and share God's truth. And yet that is considered a crime against the country. A crime against the people. And so you have pastors and Christians that are put in jail. And then you have interference. Which the idea there is, is making it difficult to gather, making it difficult to purchase land, making it difficult to exercise your worship. 
I remember a previous church, there, were, there, were, there was a, a team that went to Russia to, to help with camp ministries. Betty, where are you? Is she working? All right. Betty, I, she was part of the first team, but the second team in Russia, as I recall, um, they, they were shadowed by, by government people at this camp who had been told by their superiors, you shut this camp down. And there were these Americans that were working there, and the Americans ended up being the ones that were talking to these government officials. And they invited them to come into what they were doing. And these people that were sent by the government to find a reason to shut them down could not find a reason to shut them down. Because they were being told, oh, they're just brainwashing the kids. And they were seeing all these people, adults, helping these kids, loving these kids, playing with these kids, the kids having fun, having a great time. They could find no reason, but there was this intimidation factor. And every day, they wondered whether or not there, people were going to come in and say, you've got to stop, you've got to shut down. So this, this, this idea of interference is commonplace in places around the world. And it may even take place here in our context. The last one, I'm, I'm using this word not because it's a buzzword right now, but uh, in, in schools it is, but I mean it in its proper sense. There's a sense in which bullying can take place too. And it comes through intimidation. It comes through silencing. It's like you know, a Christian actually just simply articulating the gospel on TV in a talk show. What happens to them? I mean, they are laughed to scorn. Unless you have someone like Larry King who, who's careful to choose some people, and you can listen to John MacArthur or Al Mohler articulate the gospel in a panel discussion, and he actually welcomes it, and he doesn't knock them down. He asks more questions, but more often than not, you have a Christian on the view, <laughs> laugh at you. And that's the sense. You see, it's like, you, you have no business saying anything because you believe in the Bible. I mean, who does that? See, it's all intimidation. It's all bullying to silence you, to stop opening your mouth, to stop living for Christ in this world. And friends, we, we may be at different levels and different stages, and you might be in different stages because of the context of your work or your, your life or what you do, um, but there is this aggression that is always going to be against the things of God. Now, having looked at that, we want to kind of do some full circle now and reflect back on our text and what we're talking about here and I want to just kind of land the plane on three commitments that I think are helpful for us as we, as we reflect on this text that just really flow out of this text. And you can do this on the back of your handout. Um, there's not going to be a ton of concluding thoughts, so you can fill it right in there, okay? First of all, I want to just, just say let's focus now on what I'm calling commitment to brotherhood. One of the things that's really interesting in this whole section of Scripture is the emphasis on the word together and the word brothers. In the front end of this passage, um, the word together is found in verse 13. It's not in the, in the ESV, but it's there in the Hebrew. Uh, it's actually in some of the other translations. Um, verse, it says, he met them together. They fell down together, verse 16. The people of Benjamin, um, that, in other words, Israel, gathered themselves together. That's verse 25. He, Abner, gathered all the people together. Now, 
You say, well, that's just a word that's being used to describe the scenario. Yes, but sometimes words are used purposely by a narrator to help us understand and to remind us of something. Because as we get to the end of the story, what actually is the word that comes out that comes out of Abner's mouth that he's using now? And it's the word brothers. Verse 26, how long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? If you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until morning. Why did the, why did the men stop fighting? Because they realized the significance of what was going on. They were killing their brothers. So there's this, there's this emphasis then on this, this commitment to brotherhood. And this brotherhood is a brotherhood of believers or followers of God. But it's also a brotherhood of mankind. And um, let me just kind of flesh this out a little bit more. There's often, but not always, a sad reality of war, and that is that brothers who would, I want to say, normally be together are forced to fight against one another. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Um, The Civil War in the United States. You a Civil War buff, probably more than I am, but you'll recognize on both sides you had godly people, people who loved the Lord, who worshiped God, who would sing songs and praise for God, who would then go to battle against one another. And you're like, how in the world can that happen? And then you read of stories of how, how there was compassion on both sides in different situations, and it was brotherhood under the gospel that actually was being fleshed out there. There was a reluctance to fight, but there was a brotherhood even in that particular kind of context. It wasn't just about slavery. It was also about territory and being from the north and being from the south, but there certainly was a brotherhood factor. Now, World War I, you had the Germans on one side and you had the British on the other side and you had in the middle this no man's land. And the stories are told that that when the fighting would stop, like on Sundays, at Easter, and even at Christmas, they could hear their enemies across the no-man's land singing hymns, singing songs. In fact, there's a time where on a Christmas day, everything stopped, and they played a soccer game. Of course, Germany won, which was not the good thing, but... All right, but the thing is, they came together as brothers. It's a sense in which we're going to stop the fighting. We're going to play a soccer game. We're going to sing songs, but then we go back to killing each other. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of foolishness that happens in war, right? When you think about it, there's brother fighting brother. And that's certainly true of believers, but that's even true in the context of humanity. And as I reflect on history, I've come up come to some conclusions. And here are just some four things that, that just come to my mind that I was thinking through. So you just think, these are my musings, not necessarily biblical musings, but my musings. Uh, number one, some wars are the result of stubborn pride and stupidity. Right, some wars are the result of stubborn pride and stupidity. Have you guys ever heard of the soccer war? In 1969, Honduras and El Salvador were having border struggles. There was tension going on. Salvadorians were creeping over the border because they were looking for work. They were looking for, for places to live. And it was causing tension. At the same time as the tension was rising, there was the, um, the pre-games for the 1970 World Cup that was going to take place in Mexico. 
And it just so happened as things unfolded that it came down for this last place and it was between Honduras and El Salvador. And so the way they structured it is they were going to play the best of three. First game was to take place in Honduras. And as the El Salvadorian soccer team is in their hotel, fans, you might want to say Hondurans from all over the place, came around that hotel and they basically screamed and yelled and threw rocks at the windows and these Salvadorian players could not get any sleep. And so the next morning they get up and they go play the game and they lose the game one nothing. The next game is in El Salvador. And guess what happens there? The El Salvadorian or the Salvadorian people all rise up and there are heightened now riots that are going on and they are now throwing abuses, doing the same thing, throwing rocks and stuff like that, actually even calling for their death and, and just tearing things apart. And in that game, um, Honduras won, sorry, um, El Salvador won 3 nothing. And here's what the coach for Honduras said. We were lucky to lose the game 3 nothing. And his point was, if we had done any better, the violence may have been worse. The final game was played in Mexico. It's a hard-fought game, and El Salvador won 3-2. to two. And as the story goes, it was that victory that kind of was the spark that helped all the tensions now explode into a war. For 100 hours, called the 100 Hours War, they fought together. Over 6,000 people died, 15,000 people were, um, were injured, and thousands were left homeless. It wasn't all because of soccer, but soccer played a big part, all right? Now, the point is that some wars are the result of stubborn pride and stupidity. How you can allow a soccer game to affect a nation like that? But some people in South America... Soccer is a big deal, right? Secondly, many are the result of pure evil ambition, right? Some wars are the result of pure evil ambition. I'm thinking here of Hitler. I'm thinking of ISIS. I'm thinking of Al-Qaeda. I'm thinking of the Taliban. I'm thinking of, of just people in history where the intent is evil, and we are going to expand, and in that expansion, we are going to be evil. That is true, and I think history has revealed that. Other wars are the result of matters of conscience. You might want to put the, the, our civil war in our country was, for many people, a matter of conscience on an issue that was important to them. And then the fourth one is this. Uh, some wars are the result of defending and protecting nations, families, peoples. But the bottom line is this. War is a horrible reality. But sometimes, friends, it's a necessary reality that a nation or a people must embrace reluctantly. It just depends on the why of it. One of, my, one of my pastor heroes from years past is a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was ministering, kind of began to minister in that time between the First World War and the Second World War. And he was actually... By, by conviction, a pacifist. That means he didn't believe in going to war, and, um, and that was his position. 
And as, as he entered into the time when Hitler was on, on, the, on the prowl, so to speak, in, in Europe, he still remained a pacifist until he began to understand the atrocities that Hitler was doing with the Jews. And at that point in time, how he was bombing all, you know, London and he also destroyed the city of, of Coventry. It, it changed his perspective because he realized the evil intent of Hitler and he came to a conclusion that there are times when war is necessary. And so, friends, there's, there's, there's some practical wisdom that we need to have when it comes to understanding aggression and war and violence. I would say this. Number one, we must not be aggressively cavalier about war. Sometimes I've heard Christians say things like, they should just drop a nuclear bomb on them and just get it over with. And of course, in saying that, what are you doing? You're forgetting about all the innocent people who happen to be around them that would suffer if that were to take place. Now, certainly we understand the significance of an evil regime who doesn't care about those people, who are willing to use those people as human shields. And so there's, there's a need to be mindful about how you actually go about taking care of defeating an enemy who's willing to do that. Um, it might seem simplistic to drop a bomb that would be that significant, um, but that may not necessarily be a wise choice. And we need to be really careful that we're, we're not so aggressively cavalier when it comes to war. But on the other hand, we must not be stubbornly passive about war. As difficult as it is, there are times when war is a necessary evil, right? To protect the innocent, to defeat evil that is there. We're, we're not war mongers. We're not looking for a fight. But neither are we to be those who weasel away from our responsibility to defend our country or our friends or atrocities around the world. Now the Bible does say, don't trust in chariots and horses. But it doesn't say don't use them. It says don't trust them. God's people use them. In fact, God told his people to use them on many occasions to carry out his justice, to defend his people. So as we go back to our text, Joab and his men are quick to stop when the opportunity to stop is presented to them. They're not interested in killing any more of their brothers. That's the first commitment, a commitment to brotherhood. I'll go through the next two real fast here. Secondly, a commitment to resolving conflicts biblically. See, in our text, Ahab is standing in opposition to David, and he is aggressively moving to further his opposition to God. And Joab was right to come and to meet him and by his presence confront Ahab with his rebellion against God. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the man who ceases to believe in God tries to deify himself. So if God is not God, then I want to be God. That's what he's saying. And here we have Ahab who's raising himself up. And just like the conflicts arise on a global scale, conflicts will arise in the arena of the church. And I want to throw out three passages for you to contemplate on this Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, where it begins with 
Judge not lest you be judged, right? Oh, yeah, I love that one. But it also walks us through then what you need to do in order to properly come to someone who needs correction, who needs to be confronted. And basically it's saying, take the log out of your own eye so that you can do what God is calling you to do. And then there's Matthew 18, 15 through 17, which is the passage that talks about biblical church discipline and restoration. If, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that, you, by, uh, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And the goal of this passage is restoration. The goal is that person being brought back into a right standing with you, with the fellowship, and with God. Another key verse on this topic is this. It's Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. So there's basically three principles that flow out of these texts. Confrontation is necessary, but always humble and gentle in manner, always with a heart that is cleansed and pure, and always with the goal of restoration. Secondly, it's, it's, repentance is necessary. In order for restoration to take place, there must be repentance. And repentance is acknowledging that what you've done is actually a sin against God or against those people. You confess it as such, you seek forgiveness, and you change your ways based on what God actually says. So repentance is a change of heart and mind that leads to a change in life. And that life then is evidenced by bearing fruit that matches the repentance. The third thing there would be restitution is necessary. Sometimes, based on whatever the conflict is, if someone stole something or did something where there would need to be restitution, um, that restitution needs to take place. If I steal $100 from you and you're confronting me with it, I say, yeah, I did it. You know, please forgive me. Forgiveness does not mean that you do not need to get the $100 back. In fact, the Old Testament, you gave back fourfold. And there are times, sometimes, if you have to make restitution, you give above and beyond what you took to make sure that the spirit of your reconciliation is completely understood. Now, as we reflect on our text, that here, here's, here's the ultimate question. What is lacking in Ahab when Joab finally catches up to him and he is defeated... And all these people around them are dead. There is no hint of regret. There is no repentance. And as soon as the trumpet is blown and everything stops, he scampers away. But friends, God calls us in the context of conflict to pursue restoration in a biblical and Christ-like fashion. Number three, a commitment to believe God's promises. This message screams at us saying you cannot thwart the promises of God through military might or aggression. You just cannot do it. What God promises will take place. He will not be defeated ever. Now Abner knew that God had promised David the kingship. And so his... his Rebellion doesn't make sense to us except for the fact that we realize that sin permeates us. It affects our thinking. It causes us to make decisions that do not honor God. You see, you're not a sinner because you commit sin. 
You sin because you are a sinner. That is your nature. You are contaminated by sin, and so you're affected by that. And so this, this story, this record, is a reminder to us that Abner already knew God's promises. Abner could quote God's promises. Abner had seen the beginnings of God's promises being fulfilled, and yet he still was shaking his fist at God. And if we're honest, friends, about our own hearts, Abner is not too far away from us. He's not. Because, you see, we, we share that Abner nature to want to rule our own hearts and to ignore the truth of God's word. And so our sinfulness results in stupidity, in perversity, and in twisted thinking. My friends, we need Abner to preach to our hearts. We must let him preach to us that it is possible to know the truth but not embrace the truth. It's possible to quote the truth but not submit to the truth. It's possible to affirm the truth by our words and deny it by our thoughts and actions. Now, quickly a concluding thought. A number of years ago, Ronald Reagan was giving a speech to a group of evangelicals. And as he talked, those evangelicals became giddy because they saw in him someone that would reflect some of their values, some of their passions, and they began to imagine what life would be like if he were the president of our country, and we all know that he ultimately was. But after that speech, a man by the name of Chuck Colson, who was part of President Nixon's um, advisory um, group, he wrote an article, and in that article, this is what he said. I say this for our benefit to understand and to be careful. He said, the kingdom of God doesn't arrive on Air Force One. You see, what Colson was saying was this, military might and political power are no substitute for God and his promises. Our only hope is found in the one who is the savior, the one who is our Christ. We can be thankful for someone that may carry similar values, but our hope is found in him and him alone. So the key for any of us living in a world or society or country that is violently aggressive to Christ and his followers is this, to know that God sovereignly rules and reigns and to find contentment in the promises he gives us that are contained in his word. See, God's promises are not just thrown out there just to fill the pages of God's word. His promises are out there to show that he is the kind of God that keeps his promises, that is consistent with his promises. And so if there's a promise that is yet for us, that is yet to take place, we can hold on to those truths and allow them to carry us through the struggles of life. No matter how harsh they are, 
no matter how violent they are, no matter how aggressive they are, his promises will always be true. No matter what kind of military might might come against him. Friends, let's be a people who allow God's promises to carry us through life with confidence and assurance that what he says he will do. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to look in your word. Strengthen us, Lord, with your truth. Allow us, Lord, to to learn from the failure of Ahab how man who shakes his fist at God will always fall ultimately because your promises will always, always, always be true. We need that reminder, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.